Inspired by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision-making. And in true baller style, We'll serve it up with good old-fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now, at 5'8", from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics, conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. Also, weighing in at just over 200 pounds with a full beard from the Philadelphia 76ers, and the other MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Daryl Morey. In our sixth episode, we're thrilled to welcome Mina Kimes, senior writer for ESPN, analyst on NFL Live, passionate Seattle sports fan, and avid MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference supporter. Mina joined ESPN in 2014, where she also hosts her podcast, The Mina Kimes Show, featuring Lenny and also a regular contributor to Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, and SportsCenter. Today we'll cover Mina's insights and avidity for football, the evolution of analytics in the NFL, and a perspective on the future of football. Before we get going into the questions, I want to talk about when Daryl wrote you and asked you to do an Etch-A-Sketch. We believe it was for Dwight Howard. In, in our, was it not Dwight Howard? <laughs> Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> You can't talk about that's it. for Daryl to address. No, not that's me. secret. I, I kept it secret in my very private message to Mina that she then broadcast to the world on highly questionable. Daryl, yeah. I've broadcasted that to the world several times because I find it so charming. Um, I, I think it's a very flattering story. I also think it's a very um, confusing story because. So for the, I, I, we should, I should explain it because I'm sure a lot of people listening have no idea what the hell we're talking about. Uh, the first time I interacted with Daryl was back when I was a writer at ESPN. I wasn't an analyst, and but I was publishing my Etch-A-Sketches of Athletes. Daryl reached out to me, um, he was in Houston at the time, asking if he could commission me to do one, which uh, I felt was outside the scope of my... I, I, how do I put this? I, I can, I, as a reporter, I certainly could not entice a free agent to come to Houston, but the more important and pressing question was what NBA player would be impressed by an Etch-A-Sketch? And that's what I found so charming and confusing because I, it really, I, I believe that you, Daryl Morey would be impressed by one, but I, I, I really couldn't fathom any NBA player giving a shit. I don't know if we're allowed to cuss here about my uh, Etch-A-Sketch abilities. So the table is set, Daryl, if you want to step in and explain your thinking. I would say you're wrong. I would say I would say that the NBA players are not as mature as you might expect. And, a, and an Etch-A-Sketch drawing that shows the talent and care that would have been put into it, uh, I think, would have been the key. They would be like, you know, I'm going to join a super team in Golden State. But wait, nope, I got an Etch-A-Sketch. Houston it is. <laughs> Uh, going. Whoa, this, this team loves me so much. They sought out a person who could uh, produce my countenance with a single line. Well, shit, the game has changed for me. I am Houston bound. Um, <laughs> I, 
I love it. I, I think it's a very flattering story for you. Maybe, maybe a little mystifying though. I, I want to just throw out here. I, I love Mina. I love that you are calling out Daryl on this. As you know, the name of the podcast is trash talking and you have come in, you've come on guns a blazing and <laughs> I'm excited because the other big thing that we have been talking a lot about during this podcast is the NFL, which um, I've obviously had a prominent uh, role and perspective in for a long time. And Daryl, we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit, but I was like, we need Mina Kimes. She loves the NFL and she's into analytics in the NFL and she's going to bring some hot takes to counter some of the feedback that Daryl has been throwing out there on this podcast. Oh. So obviously when we asked you to be on the show, we didn't know that you were going to break the story about the former Mets GM, but congratulations. I guess through your investigation process, can you provide a little bit of perspective about, because you've known about it since 2016, the timing of it coming out now and kind of what your process was just in terms of investigating because it's it's a huge story and it's has huge ramifications sure yeah I, I don't know if um i don't know if you guys know this or or certainly people listening but before i came to espn i was an investigative reporter um writing about finance and uh businesses i did a lot of healthcare investigations hedge funds, all of that. So that actually was my background um, coming into sports, even before I was a sports reporter. So I had some experience in the area and, um, you know, my, I guess what I would tell people about investigative stories, especially of this nature is sometimes they take a while to come to fruition because um, it, with a story like this one about sexual harassment, um, it's up to the source when the story comes out frankly. Um, and this was a source that I met years ago and was ready to report on the story, but the source was not. So just then it became, a, for me, a process of just waiting for the source to feel comfortable with the story coming out. And, and as I wrote in the piece, she had left the industry, which I think played a big part in that because mm, a huge reason why, whether it's female reporters or fem women who work in our industry in any sport, don't come forward is because they fear it would harm their careers. And that, of course, is indicative of the power dynamic behind this type of harassment, abuse, what have you. Um, so I think that is the single largest, biggest, single largest reason why um, it took some time for the story to come out and ultimately why it did. Well, congratulations. I think just wanted to at least start by recognizing that you're sure. obviously kind of in a different role today, maybe still doing some investigative uh, reporting, certainly writing great thought pieces on various uh, players in the NFL and esports and wherever kind of your interests lie. We'll get to that stuff later. We want to talk NFL analytics. So um, Daryl has, we've had um, Bill James on the podcast and Daryl basically asked him or posed to him which is which is the sport that is the most challenging does he think to do analytics around um or where is the biggest opportunity daryl correct me if i'm if i'm butchering that but effectively bill james did not say the nfl daryl did say the nfl in part because of the from an analytics perspective because there aren't enough pieces of data enough games uh to make it predictive 
And so it's interesting because you've moderated at least the last two, maybe three NFL, like analytics, football analytics panels at the Sloan conference Two, I think three actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was three too. And, um, the Steelers analyst two years ago said at the time that now every team in the NFL had an analyst or had an analytics team. I will, I will note that only 26 teams send uh, someone from their football staff to the conference. So I'm not sure I I agree with what he's saying, but I think just in general, your perspective on where the NFL is from an analytics perspective today, and really what you've seen as you've gotten further into the NFL kind of knowledge and experience and talking to more, more folks in the industry about the changes that are happening. Well, I guess I'll start by saying, I think Daryl is right of about football being challenging um, in terms of making advances in the space and compared to, you know, baseball and basketball. I can't really speak to other sports um, for the reasons you suggested. It's, um, you know, the smaller data set that we're working with, especially on a play to play basis, game to game. And um, I, I would also add, I think, you know, culturally, there's some there's been some resistance in the sport because of that. Um, and, you know, football also, there's so many inputs, uh, on every given play that it's, we treat, or we should be treating analytics or analytically derived processes as just one of many inputs. But I think sometimes it gets confused as being a binary. Okay. Well, analytics say to do this or analytics favor this. And that's really not the case in football. Um, that said, it's if you watch the game now, you see the influence not just on fourth down decisions or whether to go for two, the obvious things that come up in broadcasts, but in term, you see it in asset allocation, you see it in play calling, you see the influence in decision making. Increasingly, I found in conversations with my friends and people I know who work on teams, it's an input that um, is has more value and weight in all of the decisions that go and not just building a football team, but game day execution. Uh, so I think there's sort of a disconnect between what teams are doing inside their buildings and how they value that information and then how it's being conveyed to the public at large, which is usually, you know, um, someone on a broadcast shaking their head and just saying analytics when a team goes for it and fails. <laughs> so um, that's a very roundabout way of saying football has come a long way, but there's definitely institutional reasons why it's, and structural reasons why it's lagging perhaps some of the other big sports in America. Um, But don't be fooled by what you see on the outside. Uh, The influence is there. It's real. It's happening. And we see it on the inside. I've said with the NFL that if I was working on analytics in the NFL, I might quit immediately just to keep my self-respect because you literally can't have analytics be a big part of the decision. You have 22 people on the field for every play. Mm-hmm. You have hardly any plays. You have a, you can have a great play that at the end, like, you know, the ball is bobbled and ends up being a fumble and it just randomly goes to one, two, right. or the other. And that swings the outcome by this massive amount. Right. And then you're trying to draw conclusions from that. I think they're using it in places where you can draw big conclusions on like contract, like what positions are valuable and and things like going on fourth down and you know making decisions for two or one 
but like to somehow separate a running back from the offensive line, from the, how the quarterback does play action, I think it's almost no chance. So you have to think really um, holistically. I I'd say um, a good example. I, I, I would. So so you're absolutely right. Like right, if you're saying if you're watching a team go for it or go for two on the broadcast, you can say, well, they went for two because you have more than 50% chance of converting at least one of these attempts. And if you convert one of them, you win. I, I personally think broadcast can do a lot of better job of explaining that rather than saying the analytics say to do it, but what have you, you go for it. Um, you're absolutely right. The execution and play call ultimately is what determines the success. And then again, it becomes this binary thing in the eyes of the public and all, candidly to the eyes of some coaching staff. Well, this, we went for it and we failed and we shouldn't have listened to the numbers and you know, we should just take the points or what have you. But that's not really, that's, I would argue is not only the wrong way to think about the impact of analytics on football. It's not how it's thought of by smart teams. Um, I would say a good example of the influence that it actually has on the game is you've seen an increase in early down passing rates. Um, across the team. Look at the AFC Championship. I don't know why this is coming out this weekend, but the Bills and Chiefs pass the football on, uh, amongst the earliest downs. The Chiefs are always at the top or, uh, in the NFL because something that the nerds have been advocating for a while now is it's effective. It works more. And it's, it, it is a thing that, yes, it's happening around the league for a number of reasons. I would argue um, – the style of play, quarterbacking, the influence of the college game weighs into it as well. But teams see, they they have heard, listen, it's this is effective. The numbers bear it out. Good teams do this, even if you don't have Patrick Mahomes. And we have seen those numbers rise, not just with the Bills and Chiefs, but across the league. You have exceptions like Baltimore because they're just really freaking good at running the ball, and that's different. But for the most part, Teams have leaned into trends that are driven by the numbers showing, hey, this works in the league. But Daryl, you're right. You have to look at it with a larger picture in mind. It's it's less of a play-to-play, down-to-down basis in the NFL um, because it's such a small sample size. Passing versus running to me is like threes versus two in the NBA. Like, look, we know that the math on, on the whole for passing is better than the math on the whole for running doesn't mean that running is always worse than passing. It means that if you are choosing as a team to run at a very high rate, you need to have a real reason for that. When and why aren't you play action passing enough when that has the, the highest percent of success? And, and right. to your point on people blaming analytics for everything, like and staffs that don't believe in it, you know, they'll try going on fourth down. It won't, won't work. I call that the Wiley Coyote thing where Wiley Coyote would try this great device to trap Bugs Bunny, but would, would uh, not Bugs Bunny, Jesus, the, the, the roadrunner, of course. And, and his contraption would be awesome, but he'd screw it up in a little way. And then he'd say, oh, that doesn't work. And he'd move on to the next contraption. But if you just stuck with that contraption and fixed the problem, then you'd be fine. As far as running and passing and all of that, I would say this is where bas- or football adds an added layer of complication, which is um, play calls, sequencing matters. Um, the best play callers in the NFL are very good at sequencing running and passing plays together to influence defense and confuse them and establish tendencies and, you know, 
if you watch, for example, Kyle Shanahan, a counter run in the first quarter that doesn't seem successful can ultimately set up a play action pass, a touchdown in the third quarter. So it, it, I think that's what kind of complicates it where we can't just sometimes I think you, you watch the game and there's this question, well, analytics say, you know, passing works and play action passing works. So why don't they just do that on every play? Well, again, you know, football's com- it, it, there's a, it's, it's complicated. Um, all of the plays are kind of woven together it, to say nothing also of the impact um, the offensive line has on the efficacy of all of these things and the way in which you do, you don't have to run the football for play action to be effective, but the offensive line has to convince the defense that it can, will, and, you know, run the football at some point. So it's all kind of woven together in this complicated tapestry, I'd say, um, that makes football a little bit trickier than some other sports. I was just going to say, I think it's a really interesting point because where in the past running may have, you know, been what drove football kind of similar this change that you're talking about for a long time threes was what people would do in order to open up inside so people could get inside but it's like really flipped and that it is more about shooting threes and it is you know changing the football as well to be more about passing so it's just an interesting parallel just to, to point out the one thing i want to see uh, offensive coordinator do or the head coach whoever is calling the plays or the quarterback do is, you know, on like second and seven, like you should be like an 80% pass, 20% run, something like that. Should be the ratio. I, th- I want a team that just randomizes their plays completely. And you watch the head coach over there roll a 20-sided die and pick the play. That way, the other side knows mm-hmm. something completely random is coming at them. There's no gameplay. And a completely, I mean, that's essentially what Mike D'Antoni would do. With the Rockets, we, he would he would run stuff that was basically completely randomized and in the in the hands of the decision makers, um, and, I, and I I think a lot of that gameplay would go away and would be more effective. You know, I, I would say the other so you do see teams that um, break tendency or let's say they're facing a stacked box, they'll still run. They're facing a light box, they'll throw that kind of thing, which sort of cuts to what you're speaking to, but um, I think something that complicates decision-making in football, I talked about sequencing earlier, is also the fact that uh, you have two sides that are rapidly adjusting to each other, not only on a play-to-play base or like, you know, a quarter-to-quarter basis where a a defensive coach might say, hey, we're going to just play a ton of dime or we're going to, you know, spin down the safety because they're doing this and, and break this tendency. But also within a play, you have... 11 defenders who see what you're doing and are actively trying to deceive you pre and post snap, uh, that again, complicates all of this. Um, and so I, you know, for example, the, the, the Packers are, I think a really interesting, they're, they're a team that's very progressive, the play calling they use, they do a lot of the things that we nerds like a ton of play action, a ton of pre-snap motion, et cetera. Um, you know, throwing when teams are, defending the run, have you know their base defenses out, yada, yada, yada. But last week in the wild card game, they just run it, ran it down the Rams' throat. Rodgers didn't attempt to deep pass until late in the game um, because they realized not only, okay, the, the Rams' defense has used a ton of light boxes all year, inviting teams to run, but one of the, the, the player through which it, this all flows from, Aaron Donald, he's hurt. 
and everything they do is predicated on this one player playing out of his mind and beating double teams, and he can't do that right now. And that's an in-game adjustment we're going to make, regardless of what you know the numbers have told us in the past about how our two teams play each other. Um, so it's it's a complicated stew of inputs, uh, I'll say. And uh, that's why I, I think when we talk about numbers in football, you always have to think bigger picture. What are the big picture trends that we're saying? Um, and is this team embracing that? And you find that the good teams more often than not do now. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I was As I was doing research on this uh, topic, just to better understand what's being used, obviously next-gen stats that the NFL started providing a few years ago has been huge. And um, Pro Football Focus a re- uh, recently, or maybe in the last year, said that now all 32 teams are, are using it and the depth of that information is very critical. And it seems to me like it's trending similar to how basketball did, um, Daryl, in your early days. But I think the depth of the data that's available is much more significant. So they're taking, for example, things like a safety's missed tackles on pass plays, and they are controlling for coverage type, which I don't believe they had the ability to do that type of stuff before. And we had Jonathan Kraft um, on this podcast a while ago, and he, he spoke specifically about the potential value of player-specific data, but also the challenges in getting it, right, because of the players' unions and stuff like that. Um, Is there anything, I think, with the recognition that the NFL might not be able to get that data and make sense, as you've done some of your investigative pieces on players, Aaron Rodgers, um, as an example, have you uncovered how they're using their own player data to help themselves? I think... um... It's more agents <laughs> that uh, you know are pointing to the impact that um, certain players have on the game. But um, you know, I, I would say players are cognizant of, and uh, you know, there was a funny quote I remember a couple of years ago where Kirk Cousins uh, talked about the impact of play action and how you know he didn't really need to run and sort of the way, and, and all the nerds were kind of delighted by that, but. Um, for the most part, I, I've found in my conversations with players, um, they're not super like they. How do I put this? They're very cognizant of scheme and play calling and the situations in which they thrive. And I, I suspect if this these inputs were able to um, improve their understanding of that, that that would be helpful. But, uh, you know, again, football is so different from basketball where a player could hear, hey, X, Y, and Z, and I'm really good at this. It, it just kind of doesn't really bear out that way. Um, you know, I think one of the cool things about the tracking data is we're finally able to see the way in which the presence of one player on the football field affects the others. I guess, you know, like in um, – basketball you call that gravity right when when a player is really good at shooting threes and so that's a, f- a phenomena that obviously exists in football with a player like a, a Tyreek Hill screaming down the field or the way he impacts um how defenses play the team but that's something that we couldn't really quantify until now so I don't think I don't know if players are you know cognizant of that or or care about it but it's something that we can use to finally measure performance and I think get at 
measuring things that have been unmeasurable because there's so many things in football that just can't be measured. That was one of them. How does this player affect other players? I think quarterback play in particular is incredibly difficult to quantify. Um, offensive and defensive line play, you know, we're getting past the so-called dumb stats like sacks, you know, <laughs> um, and trying to develop better statistics to measure their play. And I think those players are aware of the, you know, especially if they look good, <laughs> frankly, um, but we still have a long way to go. What would be a better stat than sacks? I mean, is it pressures? Like that's obviously, but is, is there a better stat or is maybe there isn't one today, but that there could be? Well, ESPN, we've been experimenting with a number. We've rolled out new statistics, pass rush win rate, which is incredibly difficult to say is a really useful statistic it's how fast um a player beats their blocker if if they beat their blocker in 2.5 seconds or less conversely pass win pass block win rate is the opposite uh, we do it with run as well and i think that's useful again we're using tracking data to evaluate these things sacks created first pressure first step whether or not a defender is the first to get to a quarterback all of these things are more useful than just sacks but at the end of the day you know sacks matter too in the same way that touchdowns matter or whatever like these raw stats you just have to consider them all i found yeah i don't think the extra splits like you were mentioning jessica will do anything like if you're splitting by coverage splitting by this at the end of every split in nfl you end up with an end of like four and it's utterly useless and so like that's the problem with the nfl it's also what makes it really fun like it's a very it's more it's way more art than any science and, uh, you know, I think that's why the NFL is cool. It's really never going to be cracked by any, like, data, in my opinion. And What you probably need is, like, a brilliant decision maker to run your team for many, many years at the quarterback spot that could maybe win you five or six Super Bowls through his own decision-making brilliance. And, well, unfortunately, you might lose to another team. At one point. Let me push back on that a little bit. We just saw the Chiefs lose their incredible all-world, all-galaxy quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. Um, and you know, they were facing the possibility of getting upset by Cleveland. We were watching that and, and Chad Henney was their backup quarterback. And in the fourth quarter, Andy Reed, who's a brilliant play caller, what does he do? He goes for it with his backup quarterback and they convert it. And, and, it, and that was to me, the perfect marriage of, you know, cojones, <laughs> I guess, uh, play calling the influence of analytics on the game. Um, and all of that being married together. I mean, that, that was a play that they had run with Hill a few games back. Um, the offensive lineman and quarterback, they sold it. Tony Romo thought there was just trying to force encroachment. You know what I mean? Like that, that is, there's an art to that, but you know, that, that was evidence of the fact that yes, you need a stud quarterback to win Super Bowl in the NFL or to thrive in today's NFL, but all of these additional inputs, play calling analytics, all of this can help you win on the margins. And I think the Chiefs are a really good example, Daryl, of a team that's embraced a lot of those things. Um, and that's why they have the potential in my mind to be a dynasty because good quarterbacks are wasted all the time in the NFL. Um, the city where you came from is doing that right now with the quarterback. But Kansas City and their other teams in the organization, a lot of them are teams that we're seeing rise to the top are ones that accept all of these other inputs to gain edges and those edges can add up to a Super Bowl. I watched that play live. It was so amazing. And 
to your point, uh, you know, ballsy of a call. But if it had come out wrong, would you be talking about it right now? I would. I'd be the one being like process. But you know, you're you're not wrong to say other people would criticize it. You're not wrong about that. Yeah, that's my point. It's just one play. Can't draw a lot of conclusions on that one. So. But I think what Mina said earlier is is resonating here, which is that it's very, not that basketball isn't, but basketball is much more fluid, that football is very strategic. It is obviously a game of chess. And so things that they were doing earlier in the game, even if it was Mahomes, it was setting up for that play. I, I will say I was watching the game and trying to explain it to my seven-year-old. And I was like, okay, now here's what they're trying to do. Listen to the guy, Tony Romo. And when it happened, I was like, holy cow, I can't even believe I was, it was awesome. And I think that's what makes it, as you said, Daryl, exciting. So Mina, one, you mentioned quarterbacks a little bit, a little while ago. And last year at the Sloan conference, you had a very in-depth conversation about quarterbacks uh, on the panel um, with Brian Burke and Mike Leach um, and Alec Hallaby from the Eagles front office. So um, obviously there's been a lot of people trying to quantify the impact of a quarterback, especially the intangible skills, vision, composure, decision-making, and the thing that Daryl hates me to bring up, but their performance under pressure. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering, has, have you seen any changes or improvements this year? Or are you aware, and you don't obviously need to say teams, of, of any organizations that are trying to drill deeper and are, and maybe they wouldn't share it with you, but like something that's percolating as, as they, they're onto something? Um, you know, it's so funny because something we're saying in the NFL right now is a lot of quarterbacks who look pretty raw in college are thriving. Um, Josh Allen, Mahomes was not a sure thing coming out of college. Um, Justin Herbert in Los Angeles was a prospect who I was not super impressed by at Oregon. And I think there's two ways of looking at that. One is, well, if he's got the goods and the big arm, you know, and he's tall, that's, but we see those kind of guys fail all the time. The other way I think of looking at it is um, these teams have really focused on, you know, building infrastructure around these quarterbacks, which is not really about what you're describing, but it's very, very important. But also, okay, are there these qualities that these guys have that we can isolate from their surroundings? Because quarterback is the most context-dependent position, I'd argue, in all of sports. I mean, to complete a beautiful pass, you're counting on your center to you're counting on the play call to be right, the center to snap at the offensive line to block, the wide receiver to run the right route, um, and a million things have to go right. And so, what we're trying to do is say, okay, can we isolate? Can we can we identify talent and figure out if this person is responsible for his piece of this final result, and and is he responding to failures in the other parts? You know, is he? Um, good under pressure, for example, at the offensive line, which is a huge part of quarterback play. And I, I can't really speak to whether teams are doing a better job evaluating that. Um, but I would say we, uh, on the analysis side, are doing a better job, or at least trying to do a better job of evaluating it, not just from a visual, a tape-driven perspective, but from a numbers one as well, um, more than ever, and this, and I would say the tracking data really plays a big part in this. We're do, we're doing a better job of saying, okay, how likely was it that this quarterback could complete this pass? 
how much pressure was he under? Was the wide receiver actually open? How good was the defender? We can now, for the first time ever in the history of analyzing football, are able to consider these things. This is a very new phenomena. But all of that said, and this is, again, it cuts to the complexity in the art and science of football, you have to watch. <laughs> and you have to, you have no idea what the defense was doing, what the play call was, whether or not, you know, the 11 other guys effed up. So to me, it's like a combination. You want to marry all of these things together. Um, but it's an exciting time in football because we're actually, we actually have that ability, which we didn't before. Daryl, I think we've had lots of discussions about how this evolved in basketball in particular, as you got more granular and just based on kind of, obviously you have a lot of friends who are on the, on the football side, um, making these decisions and you're hearing how Mina is describing it. How far behind do you think the NFL is recognizing your opinion that the analytics will have not as significant of an impact in the NFL as it has in other sports? Yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty clear. Like we're 10 years behind baseball and football is 10 years behind us. Both forms of football, American and international, uh, are behind quite a bit. And a lot of that is, is because it's just not going to be as useful in those sports. Uh, that said, to me and his point, there are going to be areas that are incredibly useful that you need to use or you're going to fall behind. But, you know, the, the games themselves are much harder to analyze. And basketball would be extremely hard to analyze if we didn't have only 10 players on the field at a time instead of 22. And we didn't go back and forth almost 100 times a game. Uh, and you get, and not only do that, do we get an outcome of zero, one, two, or three, so we can differentiate success and failure on those. Whereas in the NFL, you get, you know, how many drives per game? It's, it's like um, 25. I don't even know the right number, but it's a small number. Uh, and, and you often end in zero, even if you executed well. So it's, it's, uh, it's an extremely hard sport to analyze. I would say just to, I feel like I'm defending football today. Um, we are getting better at not looking at it in a zero, three or seven point of view. And, and I'm, I, I'm speaking for the analyst community, but I do think also teams when they're, you know, at the end of the year, kind of measuring success, um, you know, we like, um, in football analysis, increasingly we use expected points added and success rate to measure whether players are, um, you know, executing on any, not, not just a given drive, but a given play, Daryl, like, you know, on a first down getting four yards or five yards is much more valuable than it is on third and seven, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's a big change in our sport. I would say there's a lot of us who still don't do it. And we're, there's kind of, we're, you know, trying to get, um, it, we're trying to mainstream the, this idea of like, okay, let's actually look at what success is. Let's actually, like a quarterback, I, I, talk, I kind of alluded to Houston, like Deshaun Watson, we understand that his team is trash. Let's actually evaluate his play and actually talk about his success and individualize it. And that's, that's new. I mean, that's only recently in football, I think, have we begun to do that successfully. No, that's big. And the sports like, again, American football, international football and hockey, without an expected goals or expected points infrastructure, you literally can't make any analysis. But the important thing to remember is that those expected goal infrastructure are abstractions from act 
those are built off of actual results. And so you're one step away from true answers, right. which we get, again, almost 100 times a game, we'll get a true answer of what that outcome is. Whereas you guys have to estimate, most likely if it had gone well, you would be at a 3.2 expected points here. And your data and your models are gonna be just one step less accurate when you're building off expected outcomes versus actual outcomes. That, that, that was more my point. You made a good point back though. That's something you hear from folks in football all the time. Um, but you know, field position matters. <laughs> you know, I wanted you to come on to defend because Daryl's been bashing football on the podcast. And I think you're, I think he's bashing it. He, he, he likes to have, you know, things that he's discussing, I would say maybe arguing, um, but I personally, I think what you're bringing to bear is really significant and I understand and respect Daryl's, uh, perspective clearly, but when we're talking about the value and the impact of analytics to a sport, the impact to football right now is very significant and there's a lot to be done. The impact on baseball, obviously significantly less. I'm going to, I'm going to flip it a little bit. Well, and I think maybe like you've mentioned a lot of great examples so far, but my kind of specific question now is, you know, there's been tons of rules changes every year uh, in football. Do you think that there are certain rule changes that analytics is going to orient the league to start to think about differently? This is not really analytics, but I think a, a example, you know, like onside kicks shouldn't exist in football. It's, it's such a low percentage play and the league has made it for safety reasons, made it even more low percentage. And you've seen leagues like the AAF say, no, let's just go to, let's give, I forget what their exact rule. I think it was fourth and 12 from the 28 or something. Um, because we've quantified, you know, like, the, and again, this is not really analytics is like really basic math, but we're saying, okay, we want teams to have X percent a chance of keeping a drive alive because it's exciting. It's, this is not a meritocracy. We want an entertaining product and let's do this. And I think you're seeing the NFL recognize sort of the impact of um, a rule change like that. They're considering it. The competition committee, you know, thinks through, okay, well, what can we do to make our game, to make competition more exciting and plausible? Well, here's statistical evidence that XYZ does that. Um, so you know, I think it it definitely weighs into it. Uh, you know, we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, rules favor offense in the league because people want more offense. And um, that seems to be where things are headed. But I can see increasingly the influence of statistics on the game itself and, and from a rules framework. I love that example. And I and I think it's true. We We talk a lot about the different types of analytics descriptive, predictive, prescriptive. This one is a little bit more descriptive in nature, right? And I, but I think I agree and we we know across all of the leagues the challenges when rules are not made to enhance the the fan entertainment experience and I think that's a lot of what is happening major, in major league baseball right now as we kind of all know. The other thing going for the NFL is you're working on the really low hanging fruit. Like the early innovations in baseball like hey, don't get out you know, and hey, shoot, make three points instead of two. Those are still there in football. Like the, those are the debate, like pass more than run. Okay, sweet. Yeah, that can make a big difference. 
Um, it's going to be like the next layer down. Once you slice down, it's going to get really difficult in the NFL. So. I think also the complexity, Daryl, is like marrying the ideas that everyone recognizes in you know football analytics or whatever with not only play calling and execution, but talent. Um, it's very football. It's very complicated that way because quarterbacks control so much of the game and so much relies on the quarterback's shoulders that um, there are certain teams that are just not capable of um, bringing some of these concepts to fruition. <laughs> I think a delicate way to say that. Um, now, again, to go back to the Chiefs Henny example, you know, I, I, I specifically wanted to think of an example where the quarterback wasn't on the field um, because those are things that teams can do as well. But the quarterback is a limiting factor for a lot of organizations, for sure. I, we actually talked about the value of the quarterback in our podcast with Nate Silver because we were talking about LeBron James as a generational talent and you can't really put an answer, oh, you're going to go to the finals. And so the discussion was basically, is there any other sport where a, one player can have that much influence? And, and, and Nate really came down on the NFL and a quarterback. Yeah. So I think that that's what your, your focus on it and the lead and teams focus on it is spot on across the board. So it's interesting to hear it kind of reinforced here. I love that the NFL has trended towards what seemed like the most basic insight ever, which is that the guy with the ball, the quarterback should be a threat in multiple ways, not just like sitting in the back and just like throwing it. And I, for me, like obviously the generation of players, I, I always thought Antoine Randall L was going to be this very significant player because of it, because he was going to be one of these multi, multi-thread quarterbacks. And it seems to be going that way. That's the big, that's one of the big areas of basketball now that, if you can understand the skill level of the players, you can then identify those players who are in systems that aren't good for their skills and plug them into yours. And that's just a whole nother level of complexity for the NFL too. And again, we have a chance to analyze it. And I think in the NFL, it's super hard. It's um, it seems very obvious in football because it's just numbers and gaps. And when you have a guy who changes the numbers on the football field, um, makes the game easier <laughs> but you know uh baltimore is a great example of a team running into limitations and that's not just on lamar jackson the quarterback it has to do with the play calling and the personnel elsewhere um and that's sort of where the nfl being a hard cap league also kind of gets into this and and whatnot but um you're seeing you're undeniably like it's absolutely correct that more teams uh recognize the utility of quarterback mobility than ever. And that's a real change in the last five years. And there are structural reasons and frankly, cultural ones why that took a long time for the league to embrace. But, um, it, you know, defenses adjust and this is why the NFL is such a great chess game. And then suddenly you have to find the next edge, even when you've identified and exploited that advantage, because not every quarterback is, you know, Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. I think the teams that thrive in the NFL is similar to basketball. It's where the owner, the play, you know, the personnel person and the head coach have a shared vision for how they want to play. They build their cap spending towards that vision. They draft and sign players that fit into that cohesive system. 
and execute from there. And then that doesn't obviously lead always to winning, but it gives you the gives you the best chance. It adds a layer of complexity to all of this for sure, because especially given how impactful uh, rookie contracts are in the NFL compared to, again, other leagues where, you know, when you have a quarterback on the rookie contract, obviously it changes the math of everything. Um, but it's, um, and this is to come back to our the very first thing we talked about, which is the impact of analytics on the game. Um, I would say player valuation, positional valuation is perhaps the most vivid, um, the most obvious way in which it has, uh, as the, the ways in which teams allocate the resources they have within that hard cap has changed dramatically over the last five to 10 years. People always get mad at, you know, the analytics folks when they say, well, you know, why do you want to steal money from the running backs? And it's like, well, no, they just want to pay the left tackle. <laughs> and, the, you know, it, it's, 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 um, it's, it's it's a hard capped league. The money's going elsewhere. Um, it's just different positions are getting paid now. I love this discussion. I want to take a slight shift in what we're talking about. We'll ask you a couple more questions. And then Mina, we have a game that we're going to play to round out the, well, we hope you enjoy it. Um, you know, you've written some amazing pieces. Are you just before I even ask the question, are you still doing writing? Are you still writing? Uh, not frequently. No, I do some football insiders panels for ESPN, but I'm now a full-time NFL analyst. Well, I know that you're a full-time NFL analyst, of course, but I think my question was basically, you've written some unbelievable stories. Thank you. And so it was just like, you're welcome. Um, the question is basically, is there something out there right now that is percolating for you outside of, say, the obvious ones um, that that you're like, this is really interesting if I had the time or whatever, that this would be something I'd like to go and go deeper on? Well, I'll just say right now in football, um we're approaching the end of another hiring cycle where it looks like there's one position left, which is Houston, but it looks like once again, um, we're going to, the NFL is going to have a historically low number of black coaches, despite the fact that the league is 70% black. This is something I've weighed in on in the past, written about and spoken about, but um, that's a topic that's really important to me personally and compelling. And so it's the kind of thing I, I would love to report on, but I'm happy also give and takes on television. Well, I think that makes sense. And yeah, it is. It's, there's obviously been a lot of efforts made to try and increase that. And I think especially given everything that's happened this year, it's especially, um, I would say difficult or sad to see, to see happen. Um, and, you know, I think bringing it to light as you do is super critical. So thank you for, for doing that. Um, last question. This is about you. This one will not surprise you. I don't think. Um, but can you describe your emotions when you got the call from David Chang as his lifeline on the $1 million question? Because <laughs> I mean, the pressure that you must have felt to get that answer right for him. Yeah, I was really hoping they wouldn't call me, frankly. So the way the show works is they just t tell you to have your phone ready. And so much time had elapsed that I thought um, that I wasn't going to get the call. And I was relieved. And I also was really hungry because I remember I wanted to eat lunch. But David's really smart. I don't know if either of you guys have met him. So uh, I was also, part of me thought, oh, no, he's just climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, and then the second question I thought was, I really hope, when I saw my phone ringing, is I really hope I don't get a sports question. Because I can live, like, if I get a history question or a geography question wrong, I'm fine. But if I fuck up a sports question, 
on national television. I mean, you guys, my mentions are already a tire fire half the time. Can you like, it would just be a nightmare. So I was relieved that I wasn't, and I'm really bad at sports trivia and history. I, I just don't retain a lot of old information. So I was very glad that it wasn't like, you know, something MBA from the eighties or whatever. I think I just enjoyed the thought process you went through to land on the correct answer. And then also kind of his, when he decided to go with you, well, she's really smart. So he's the Andy Reid of chefs. He has the cojones. I'll just say that. (laughs) All right. Dara, you have anything else before we go to game time? No, no, I think uh, let's do it. Okay. So this is our take on Kiss Date Mary. We call it bench trade or franchise tag. Okay. So we're going to, yeah. So we'll give you three options. You need to tell us which ones you will do each assign and why. Okay, so the most surprising NFL offseason change. Nick Casario hired as the Texans general, general manager. John Elway stepping down as the Broncos general manager. The Eagles firing head coach, Doug Peterson. Uh, franchise tag, John Elway stepping down. That was something I thought needed to happen. It was a bit overdue. Um, I will bench... Casario because I don't think it's his fault. None of this is his fault. Uh, and then I'll trade the Doug Peterson firing, even though I understand it. Um, I think that's the one I would probably put in that category. Like you didn't see that one coming. You were like, um, yes, I would say that, that, that one is probably the most surprising to me. How much do you think it was influenced by his decisions at the, uh, against, uh, at the end of that, the final game of the season? Um, you know, I think that probably factored into it and I doubt they were made by him and him alone, <laughs> Kindly, but, um, it, it's a team in flux with a question mark at quarterback. And I suspect that weighed more into it. Okay. We know you're a big, we know you're a big Seahawks fan. So greatest Seahawks moments when the Seahawks defeated the Broncos 43 to, to eight to win the Super Bowl. Marshawn Lynch's beast mode run against the Saints in 2010 and the 2014 NFC Championship win over the Packers. Mm. That's a good selection. Surprised the, the tip with the Richard Sherman tip is kind of the, the one that really jumps out. But of, of those three, um, I will franchise tag the beast quake. It's one of the most iconic moments in Seattle sports history. Marshawn Lynch is my favorite NFL player of all time, um, which is, you know, not a running backs person. So um, I will, so it was the NFC championship game versus Super Bowl. I will bench the NFC championship game and trade the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl victory was actually fairly anticlimactic after the tip. It was the win over San Francisco with the Richard Sherman moment that really stands out uh, in my mind from that Super Bowl run. The NFC championship win over Green Bay which was, you know, the win probability chart looks like, or, you know, one of those things. Um, that I rewatched from time to time, the fourth quarter, just when I need to pick me up. So that's definitely a keeper. I love that you rewatch it <laughs> as a pick me up. It's, it's super zany. It's super zany. Changing of a couple NFL roles here. Uh, bench, tag, marry, whatever, whatever our rules are. It's not that complicated, Daryl. You're a <laughs> 
<laughs> one is we adopt college overtime rules. Mm, good. The second one is uh, getting rid of that a fumble through the end zone is a touchback. And the third one, and I'm going to add my ed- own editorial, getting rid of the nonsense that we currently call kickoffs after you make touchdowns um, and you just start with the ball on some yard line. Well, you, you should watch the AAF because it sounds like they did everything you wanted. Um I got to tag the touchback because I've been railing about it for so long being, you know, disproportionate punishment that, um, and then people will say, well, you're just incentivizing players to fumble into the end zone. First of all, from an entertainment perspective, the moments where players reach out for touchdowns is like the best thing in football. So you, you can't get rid of that. But, um, I think you could still punish teams and have a loss of down and spot them at the, you know, 10 yards from the spot of the fumble or something like that but um so i'll do that i will um bench getting rid of the kickoff i'm with you there the xfl did a great job with this actually and then uh i will i I actually do think college overtime would be better than nfl overtime but it's still imperfect but i do prefer it to the nfl overtime rule so i'll have that be the third I have to say, why can't we just fumble the ball forward? It's so damn risky. No one would do it, but it'd be fun. Like, like the Raiders did that. That's why they changed the rule in like 1981. We should be, we should be allowed to fumble the ball forward. I mean, you're taking a huge risk. Why not? NFL players always say, well, you're punishing defense enough already. So then I say, well, it's a package deal. I'm like a congressman. We also are going to get rid of DPI as a spot foul, unless it's so blatant. And so we'll do these two things in concert so that we're which is way more common by the way so we're rewarding defense uh while taking away this dumb role i know i loved you i'm I'm a just bringing people together offense and defense bringing people together and having good data focused points daryl to uh that you can debate so i hope i do um you know we got one last question funniest espn colleague Oh, okay. Wow. You ready? Funniest colleagues, Katie Nolan. Very funny. Pablo Torre. Funny guy. Or the one neither Jessica or I know how to pronounce, Dan Orlovsky. Oh, Dan Orlovsky is my colleague on NFL Live. Um, I will franchise tag Katie, bench Pablo, and I'll, uh, I'm going to have to trade my, my bud Orlovsky, even though I actually do think he's unintentionally hilarious and as a wonderful colleague and friend. But those other two are just too funny. He has a great personality. That's what you're saying. I would say Dan's actually a great example just to bring this kind of full circle of he's a brilliant football mind, former quarterback who's really come changed his mind on a lot of analytically informed things in football. Um, You know, we did a broadcast, a megacast of the Ravens Titans playoff game, and he went on a rant about how you don't need to establish the run for play action to work and the statistics backed it up and my little nerd heart swelled with pride. So, you know, uh, we're just, uh, I bet you had a lot of influence on that though. You were spreading the good word inside the building. The call is coming from inside the house and then it's working in football. <laughs> You're very convincing. So thank you. Thank I, I love it. Thank you for coming on and, uh, you know, talking about the NFL, I personally learned a ton. So thank you. I also want to mention that Katie Nolan did not make the original list of the funniest ESPN colleagues. Mm. And I said, Katie Nolan has to be in here. And the fact that you tagged her. She's the funniest would be my opinion. So I'm going to make a comment right now. 
Mina, I think we got to get you on a panel with Daryl at Sloan this year because the discussion would just be so fun for me to watch. I need some reinforcements, though, on the football side. We got to go like Warriors style or, you know, um, like Anchorman more like with the <laughs> knives and I need my football guys behind me and we got to go at Daryl and defend our sport. Daryl, do you accept this challenge? I, I accept this rose. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mina. Uh, congratulations again on, on such a big week and obviously also for jumping on with us during such a busy part of the NFL season. Where will you watch the games tomorrow? Uh, I have my own, you know, dorky setup at home with multiple things going on, <laughs> but we're actually going to be um, doing our show at, in Tampa at the Super Bowl the week after next. So you can catch it there. Post-game huddle. Mina was so awesome. I... Her, her insights and the concepts that she brought to bear and really how she went toe to toe with you, Daryl, was fun for me to watch. You had great points too, but I'm going to focus more on our guest in this point. You should definitely focus on her. She's the expert. She really has, has so many great insights. So I have three major takeaways from today. First was the game changes due to analytics. And I had never made that connection of the passing early or on the early downs and how similar that is to the evolution of threes in, in basketball. So just to make that connection for her to bring that to bear the onside kicks component and the importance of that, I, I was really fascinated with, how much she referenced some of the other leagues that, you know, unfortunately ended up folding the XFL and the AAF, but how, how there was some good testing that was happening in those leagues. And uh, those are things that should be brought to bear to, to the NFL. So those are my like game changes due to analytics that I thought were, were really great that she brought to bear and, and some of the connections and kind of consistencies that we've seen with the changes happening in basketball for you, your point, of course, not to give you too much credit here, Daryl, but that it's the, the big changes, the big impact now, but that next deeper layer is going to be challenging. And that said though, she did highlight how impactful the tra tracking data has been. And those are net new data sources. So I'm wondering if the NFL will come up with some other new data sources that could be equally impactful in helping with some of that um, monitoring. Yeah, I think over time, the overhead cameras and the tracking were, are going to really improve the how the NFL can analyze their sport, uh, even with the challenges that I've highlighted. Well, that's very good to hear. And I'm sure for all of the analysts in the NFL community, they're happy to hear that as well. The second point that Mina spoke about, and she highlighted it last year at the Sloan Conference on the Football Analytics Panel, was how important this QB data and the increased information that they're getting and able to see and the impact that it's having. Her The most interesting point that she made about that QB component is, to me anyways, what the teams are doing to surround those players and the fact that quarterbacks who didn't look like they were going to be good uh, and were raw in college coming out and having so much success. And the examples that she gave 
with Mahomes and Herbert and Josh Allen, I thought were, were, were really interesting. Do you think that that's like surprising to you? Well, it highlights how difficult it is that, look, very successful quarterbacks can be in systems like Mike Leach's that highlight their skills and, um, and then not succeed in the NFL. And then also unsuccessful quarterbacks who maybe are put into a running scheme. I know, uh, you know, um, quite a few of the SEC quarterbacks that come out do well, even though their schools are very run heavy schools. Uh, it's forecasting quarterbacks is like pretty much a provably hard, uh, a hard thing, you know, Tom Brady went in the sixth round. So that's about all you need to know. I, w- I do wonder if that will change, especially since we're seeing more of these raw quarterbacks succeeding and if they'll start to be looking for different metrics, or maybe it's just that more information is available. I don't think that player tracking data is available yet in college, but uh, it's interesting to think about it as, as it goes down to the collegiate level. My third point is the sequencing of plays and the significance that she placed on that and how debunking what people might do and going in a different way. I loved your comment on the randomization and how, um, and how Mike D'Antonio use, use that approach. It's, it's also just when um, I've had really only one time in my professional career had a chance where I was basically like the bouncer for Belichick at a, at a business event and uh, where fans were coming up to talk to him, but everyone was nervous and wouldn't come up and talk to him. So I ended up kind of just standing next to him for half an hour. So I started asking him some strategy related questions more from my viewpoint on basketball, but it was just so interesting to hear that kind of some of his thinking thinking on the strategy and sequencing and then to, to hear hear from Mina that emphasis today and I wonder if analytics like what the role of analytics might play in that on a go forward basis I mean it sounds like it's had a significant impact in the NBA but do you have any thoughts on that specific to the NFL my thought is based on your 30 minutes next to Belichick you could have taken over the Houston Texans at some point <laughs> I'm, I'm on the business side. So, um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very excited for Nick Casario. Uh, he's a, he's a longtime friend and I know the reception has not been, um, as positive as it could be, but he's really talented and I, and I know he'll have great success down there. It's not fair to Nick. Nick's obviously, uh, very good. As far as I can tell, it's just the history of, uh, history of folks going from the Patriots to the Texans is perceived as uh, not positive, And that's not really fair to Nick. I would agree. It's not fair to Nick. He is incredibly analytical. One of the hardest working people I know. And um, I wish him all the luck. So you made, by the way, you made a few references during that discussion. I think they were about Brady and the importance of alignment and having the same quarterback um, what was, am I misreading what you're saying? Were you taking jabs at me? No, I was, t- I was saying positive things about Brady. Brady's, uh, Brady's plus minus is looking pretty good right now. So, so, uh, and, uh, you know, I think if you want to be successful in the NFL, having a arguably the best decision maker all t- of all time 
have the ball in his hands for 13, 14 years, that's a good formula. Do you see that decision-making? I agree with you, of course. Do you see, and I was just kidding about you taking jabs at me there, but do, do you see that same decision-making influence in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, look, our top players, like we've talked about comparing quarterbacks in the NFL to our top players in basketball, it is a pretty good analogy. And, you know, you don't win without them and you got to put the right environment around them. And obviously the Patriots did that for many, many years. I also just want to emphasize her point at the end of what she would be interested in writing about with respect to uh, the hiring cycle and the lack of black coaches uh, being hired. I I love that she's calling that out. Do Do you think... I mean, do you have any thoughts on that or successes that you have seen? I mean, in particular, the NBA has had great success in, I would say, over the past, let's call it three or four years with having women hired as coaches. I mean, what can be done? Well, my sense is, and I haven't, I think the NFL has done the thing that should make the biggest impact, which is attaching draft picks to to the, the hiring of minority coaches. I know the NBA has done the best in that, um, in that area. I'm blessed to be with Doc Rivers. And I do think the NBA is a pioneer on, on women's coaches as well. So I'm proud to be in the league I'm in. Yeah. Well, more to come on that, hopefully, um, especially given everything that's happening. All right. So thank you to Mina Kimes. I think she did a great job. It wasn't trash talking. It was rooted in data. Uh, and insights. And Daryl, of course, your perspective was awesome and insightful as always. And congrats on being the Eastern Conference uh, leading Sixers. I was a little worried after the COVID stuff that 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 would have a really negative impact um, on your kind of team cohesion. So I'm glad to see that it it hasn't. Yeah, thanks. That was a great podcast with Nina. And uh... The uh, COVID, everyone's dealing with it. So you just get sort of like an injury you just got to deal with. Thank you to our listeners. Hope you had fun. Thank you to the MIT Sloan students, especially Andrew Lynn and Maggie Riddle. Thank you, Oracle. In sports, as well as business, analytics drive the actions you need to succeed. Oracle Analytics provides one of the most comprehensive AI-powered analytic capabilities for both business and IT. When you're ready for peak performance, it's Oracle Analytics for the win. If you enjoy this podcast, please submit questions, comments, or future topic ideas to trash talking at sloansportsconference.com. Is it